ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Every piece of data that we're collecting, whether it be like a, a lab value from an electronic health record or a you know, skin sample from one of our research trials, came from a person who has a story, who has an experience, who is likely suffering in some way, and that our job is to, is to find a way to make that better. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 202. And we have a special guest this week, Savi Glow. She is the Director of Operations for the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare. And her organization is putting on a really cool Lyme conference in New York City in October. And it is, in fact, the Mount Sinai Lyme Conference. Yes, the next-gen Mount Sinai Lyme what, Conference. What do they call themselves? Institute for Next Generation Healthcare. Super cool stuff. If you have even a little bit of a geek in you, you're going to want to get to New York City to go to this conference. Day one is super technical. You're going to hear all the researchers talk to each other. But day two is a little bit more grounded on the treatment side of thing. Dr. Hartz will will be presenting as well as some other very well-known people. So check out their website. Check it out. If you can make it to New York City at the beginning of October, we'll meet you there. It'll be super cool. We went there last year. And loved it. And geeked out o- over it in a podcast. Yes. Um <laughs> Exactly. It's really worth going to. Yeah. We and love I'm, this conference. And I'm hoping to do it again this year. Yes. We have registered. So join us and say hello. Yes. Hello, everybody. In this episode, you will learn about Savi Glow's revolutionary work using data to define what makes us healthy and how... Her group is using that data to help people with Lyme disease. How the Lyme conference at Mount Sinai was created to break down the silos within the Lyme community. And Savi's efforts to make sure the research presented is available and accessible to everyone. Thank you, Aurora. A big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. 
Aurora and I really appreciate you listening. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And speaking of tuning in, this week's top 10 tune-in cities are... Number 10, Los Angeles, California. Number 9, Narvin, Pennsylvania. Number 8, Livingston in the UK. Number 7, San Marcos, California. Number 6, Nadezhkov in the Czech Republic. Number 5, St. Louis, Missouri. Number 4, New York, New York. Number 3, Balcata, Australia. Number 2, Edmonton, Canada. And number 1 this week is Chagrin Falls in Ohio. Also, do you know your Lime score? If not, do yourself a favor, head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and fill out the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free. Thanks, Aurora. And tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Savi Glow. Savi Glow is the Director of Operations for the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare in the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Prior to Mount Sinai, she managed clinical research operations for the Neurology Research Group at Sanford University. She joined Mount Sinai in January 2013, and her work there has supported research in rare genetic disorders, lab and consumer device validation, skin disorders, Lyme disease, and precision wellness. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Savi Glow. Hello, Savi. This is McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. Hello, good morning. I'm very excited to speak with you because your conference or the conference that your organization hosts is one of my favorites, partially because it's in my backyard. And the second reason is it's free. (laughs) (laughs) You have very generous donors. Yes. Yes, we have the uh, Stephen and Alex Cohen Foundation uh, which supports our work and the work of many tremendous researchers in this field. Um, they are extraordinarily generous and um, have given us so many opportunities to do really great research and to come together as a community. So we're very grateful. Now, how did you get to the East Coast and Mount Sinai in New York City? <laughs> well, it's a long and winding story. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And I had what the kids now all call a gap year. <laughs> I took I took several gap years in my journey of understanding and self-discovery. And um, I moved to Arizona. I became a uh, massage therapist. I took a few few years off of college and did did a few a few different things. And I ultimately found myself going back to school just for the love of learning. And I wound up getting a degree in anthropology from Arizona State and was on my way to law school. And in the process of doing all of this, I I developed a skill set in building databases and in um, some basic computer programming. And so I moved to California with a partner and was working at a law firm and really just missed research. I had been doing research in Arizona and had been involved in a number of different projects and was very fortunate to be brought into the Stanford community where I was hired by this emeritus professor in neurology who took me under his wing and taught me clinical research. 
And from there, I started managing a few of his trials, um, working with some of his patients who worked in Parkinson's disease and overactive bladder and chronic pelvic pain. And working with patients in this way and with the research and with the data was just completely eye-opening. Um, it was very, it was exciting. And I still got to use a lot of the interest that I had in regulatory development and in the legal side of things in this field, in clinical research. Uh, but I also got to experience the human perspective and understand how disease and illness affects the person and the family and the community and learn methods and ways to collect data uh, that's accurate and moves the needle forward on the science and the research. So I went from the very large uh, neurourology research group at Stanford University and moved to New York and was hired in rare, genet <clears throat> rare genetic disorders, where I started working in PKU studies. And so I had... What does that stand um, for? Uh, phenylketonuria, which is a rare genetic disorder where people can't digest uh, phenylalanine, which is an amino acid that is found in most proteins. Um, so it affects very a very small segment of the population. So in as you can imagine, in urology disorders, there are thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of people who experience um, symptoms of overactive bladder and stress incontinence and erectile dysfunction. And in rare genetic disorders, it's it's only a few. And I found this to be interesting from um, a research side because it meant that our data had to be had to be absolutely precise, and the way that studies were designed were with much, much smaller ends, much smaller numbers of people. And the other thing that I found very interesting is the patient community in rare genetic disorders is so engaged and so active, and they spend so much time advocating for themselves that it's, it was my experience really getting to see that. And I'm very grateful for, for the time that I spent, um, that I spent working in, in that field. But um, as, as I was working in neurogenetic disorders, my, um, my colleague from Stanford, Joel Dudley, had started a lab also at Mount Sinai, and he is a um, biomedical informaticist. And his group was growing. He had hired a number of different uh, staff scientists, and he wanted to get into clinical research. He was a data scientist who wanted to be at the forefront of collecting data himself. Didn't want to just rely on whatever data was being collected in the electronic medical records or that was coming from different different companies or uh, pharmaceuticals. And so he hired me, he brought me on to build the clinical trials program for his group. And at that time, we were just a single PI. Um, so it was just Joel and there were about 12 of us. And we quickly became the center, the hair center for precision wellness. So we took on this, this mission of understanding, understanding biology and the human body, not from a place of sick care, not from a place of disease and dysfunction, but from um, health and op optimizing around the well human, like knowing who the well human is and optimizing around that. So. And quickly after we became the 
Harris Center for Precision Wellness, we started the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare and uh, began our work with the with the Cohen Foundation and in Lyme disease. So, so did that the is Cohen Foundation come to you, or what? How did you branch out into Lyme disease, or did your, that's such your group? A, that's I yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the Cohens came to Joel specifically because we are not, we were not researchers in Lyme disease, but we we had done so much work in all all kinds of different areas, just taking on data and being agnostic to the results that, that we would possibly find. Um, and so we had just published a really incredible study in science translational medicine on a discovery in type 2 diabetes where Using the electronic health records, we had found a few different subtypes of patients who had who had type two diabetes, which helped explain why there are different patterns in treatment and reaction to treatment and um, ability for recovery. And so we had just published that, and we had been doing a lot of other work in uh, drug repurposing and using uh, building neural networks from large sequencing data sets. And so the Collins came to us, they were just building their research consortia. I think they were at the very earliest stages of bringing together this incredible community of researchers and physicians and advocates. And they came to us and wanted a group that could take all of the data that was being collected and pull it into a resource that could be used for not just the consortia, but for the public and then using our own particular brand of uh, magic, <laughs> um, <laughs> turn turn all of that data into into a network that would hopefully elucidate some new understandings on the biology and the um, the treatment, the diagnostics of of Lyme disease. Let's stay at this kind of really broad satellite view for a little bit, if you don't mind, and. Not at all. And I don't, I, I mean this as a compliment and not a, a little a dig, but you, you came into research through the side door. Yes, with a, yes, I did. With a very interesting stack of skills. That's not normal. So coming in from the, quote unquote, from the outside, what what did you see as kind of the the stumbling blocks that researchers had? And, and then what different kind of uh, insight or view did you bring to research being a, I mean, you're a massage therapist, data program. There are not too many of those out there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there aren't. Um, so I think that, so for one, I'm very grateful to be with a group of researchers who are all from very different backgrounds. We we've all kind of found our way into this, this field of study through a number of different side doors and back doors and maybe some alleyways. Um, and for me, I think that what's always been at the, the front and center of the way I view the human body and the way that I view disease and wellness is that everything is interconnected. Everything is, I mean, the mind and body connection for one thing is, is tremendous. And the, the way that the systems interact is um, is mind-blowing. So and a great example of this that's being discovered now in, in 
data science and traditional uh, research avenues is the connection between the gut microbiome and cognitive function. Like, isn't it amazing to think that there are, yeah, there are tiny, there are so many bugs, like so many other organisms living inside of us that influence the way we think. Like, that's just, that's mind-boggling. And so it hasn't been until the last, I don't know, the last 15 years that we've even had the technology to, to be able to understand this on a whole collective level. And so the, our ability as, as scientists, as researchers, and as humans to understand how everything is connected is, is just growing tremendously. And so I think that, that that's one of the, the biggest parts that I find engaging and exciting from my, my personal life to my professional life is that we get to, we get to really look at the whole human and understand the interconnectedness of it all. The other, the other thing that I bring to the table is that I think the connection to our end goal is absolutely necessary. Researchers are not connected to the patient. They're not necessarily connected to the disease. And for very good reasons, they've been, I mean, there are legal regulations on why like researchers and patients are, are removed from each other in the process. Um, but it also, it also becomes too complicated to take in, you know, the whole patient when you're studying something, you know, as small as, as a genome. So, for me, I think that if I, if I see myself having any role is reminding the researchers that are, that are doing this work that every piece of data that we're collecting, whether it be like a, a lab value from an electronic health records or a you know, skin sample from one of our research trials came from a person who has a story, who has an experience, who is likely suffering in some way and that our job is to is to find a way to make that better if possible and is that the genesis for the conferences that is the I mean, genesis the first, for this year's the conference first, the, the first conference was kind of brought in the patient side of thing and the clinician side of thing the second one was pretty much all research um, mm-hmm. and this third one now you've gone to kind of a, a I don't want to call it a hybrid, but you've separated out the first day being all the hardcore research and the second being more oriented to patients. So do do you remember the genesis for saying, oh, we should do a conference? Because you're (laughs) researchers, for goodness sake. Researchers, you know, attend conferences put on by other people and, you know, kind of stay with their tribe, so to speak. But the first one was really daring in bringing in clinicians. And, you know, there are a few, I remember a few of the activists kind of standing up and asking point, trying to ask pointed questions about how come you're not doing more of this and more of that. Yes. So honestly, the first year, the first conference that we hosted was our naive attempt to understand this, this incredible field. Uh, Like I said earlier, we were not, researchers with Lyme disease. And so we, we didn't know, we didn't know the background, um, to be perfectly honest with you, of what was, what had been going on in the fight that had been being had for, for years, for decades. So for us, we wanted to host a conference that would bring together all of our fellow consortium members. So all the people who would be 
doing work with us over the course of our mutual grants and begin to to begin to connect those lines of communication so that ideally we could all start collaborating and working together. And from from my perspective as I as I worked on year one and we we put it together, I said, well why not make it free? Why not make it open to the public and let's see who who will come because, you know, that would be cool. And I was blown away. I thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was cool. Yeah, and I was I was blown away by the passion and the 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 knowledge, the education, like the this patient community is so yeah, so well educated. Yeah, yeah. And um and and passionate and advocates for themselves. So I mean I, I saw this, I you know I got a taste of this in working in rare genetic disorders, but you know Watching it happen from you know this is a this is a public health dis- disease this is this is not a genetic disorder this is something that can affect anybody at any time and recognizing like this community of people have single handedly brought together so much research and so much movement in this field um, just through having that voice and so that's like that was that was my takeaway from year one. And honestly, year two ended up being the a research day, largely because we needed to we needed to focus we needed to focus our research efforts and really and really come together and you know have some have some deep conversations and make sure that like we were moving the needle forward and and being good stewards of of the the gift that was given to us um, from the Cohens. And so this year is is a hybrid and. And it came it came about for a couple of a couple of different paths. Um, one, I was having a conversation with a few of our a few of our uh, data scientists who were talking about the sequencing data that was coming in, and and someone had said in the meeting, "I don't even know anybody who has Lyme," and and which is kind of a hard, like it's an amazing thing given that we're in New York City and that you know it's endemic to this area and this region and um but it re- it reiterated that disconnect for me that that researchers are removed from the patients and then I started going in and looking at the we do a survey at the end of every conference and I was going in and looking at the the some of the comments and we had a couple of participants comment and say it was really cool learning about the research. I wish I could understand it more. And I thought to myself, like, well, we could do a better job at that. Like, we could certainly make make this more of a training for the public instead of just a you know blurb about you know the sing- singular focus of one particular like gene mutation that's influencing this immune pathway, like. Why, why not make this something that's more approachable like in the vein of cosmos, like with, you know, Carl Sagan, um, something that, that could provide a, a greater overview of the entire field and hopefully explain why so much of the research that's happening both clinically and uh, at the basic science level is, is relevant to the patient, even though you're not necessarily seeing the fruits of it immediately. That's, one of the complaints that I hear repeated over and over again on the, the patient side of this is there 
frustration with the pace of science. And I, I tried to explain to them, that's just how science works. <laughs> it's like you, and, and to make things clinically relevant, uh, you know, you, it, it takes those pioneer clinicians that, you know, see a strain of research and then bring it into the, the clinic and begin to essentially take risks on their own with, with their mm-hmm. patient's consent, of course. And, but that's, that's, you know, it, that's trial and error. And that's not particularly science. It's, science needs to protect, uh, proceed step by step, right? Mm-hmm. And the breakthroughs come from, from weird places sometimes. So can you, I mean, I have a question in there somewhere. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking you to defend the scientific process a little bit or just educate people. It's like, what, you know, you're, you're kind of on the back end of the scientific process. So you, you create the environment in which these scientists can thrive and make sure they have the funding mm-hmm. and the materials they need. You're, you know, you're the director of operations here. You're not sitting yeah. at the computer, at the bench, doing, doing the research itself. So I, I guess it's kind of two questions. What, where do you see Lyme research heading, and what, in terms of the timeline, do you do? You, is it like, are we on the cusp of something? Or are we in the beginning stages? Where are we in general with this Lyme research, and not so much understanding uh, the disease itself, but then how how this understanding then begin will begin to translate into the clinic? Is that is that a Clear enough question. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, yeah, I know, I know. I'm asking you to <laughs> solve the world problems. All right, that's okay. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that I, I one I want to speak first to how I recognize that it's so frustrating being a person who's suffering and looking for answers. And not feeling like they are, that they're available when you need them. Um, you know, this is, this is the, the hard part that we have in research that, you know, like patients are dying of cancer and, and we wish that like the, some of the discoveries that we were making, like could be immediately trans, translated into a new treatment or a new option or, um, or a new life saving, a new life saving diagnostic. Uh, but it does take time. I think that we are at the cusp of something really, really transformative, not just in not just in my research, but in all of healthcare, um, with the the thought advent of precision medicine. And right now, precision medicine as a concept really exists just in oncology. And this is the idea that as an individual, your your disease or your disorder in the case of cancer, your mutation is unique to you. And therefore the treatments that we, that we use on you to, to combat that, that mutation should also be unique and tailored. And so this idea that we as individuals are similar to other people, but also that are also unique is driving a lot of the thought behind how how we are doing research and and this concept that your disease while it may be caused by from the same bug you know that same borrelia bug 
the way that your body is responding to it is unique to you. And if there's a way that we can understand systemically how, how your body and your immune system is fighting that is fighting that, that bug, we might be able to understand why there are patients who clear the acute infection with, you know, just one course of antibiotics. And then we might be able to understand why there are patients who are still, are still fighting with the same um, systemic symptoms, the same complex symptoms um, years, sometimes decades later. So, um, and the only way for us to understand these very, very complex systems is through large data and through, and, and through, um, machine learning and computational analysis, which is what our team, which is what our team is working on and driving towards. You know, I want to pause there because you said it and kind of pass over very quickly. You said, you know, that this very, very complex system or these very, very complex systems. And I think that's one of the big mismatches. So on our side of things, it's like, well, how, how hard the question comes back? How hard can this be? And then from your side, it's like, you guys have no idea. These, these are systems nested within systems nested within systems. They all interact. They all have crosstalk. It is ridiculously complex. And, yeah. and you push, you know, you push one, you know, you do identify a potential intervention, uh, either a repurpose of a drug or an herbal remedy, and then mm-hmm. you launch it into these incredibly complex systems, otherwise known as a human being. And, you know, sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes all hell breaks loose and things get worse. And sometimes mm-hmm. things work for mm-hmm. some of the people. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think that's the, that's the, the crucial piece of this. And uh, kind of in my treatment of Lyme disease, my background is in acupuncture. So I, that's my day job. I'm an acupuncturist. Mm-hmm. So I see quite a few people with Lyme disease and, and other just kind of weird, vague symptoms. You know, they're not sick enough to be bedridden, but they're not happy and healthy. And they've kind of fallen through the cracks. There's nothing obviously wrong with them. All the tests come back normal. So they end up in my office. And it's mm-hmm. something like Lyme, you see a kind of a singular, maybe singular, you know, there's always the co-infections and the other opportunistic infections, but you get infected with something or some things and then kind of things explode into the multiple different ways that individuals handle that sort of event. But then it's like on the other end, it's like the symptoms collapse into a a fairly consistent pattern as well. So it's interesting to me that you've got all this massive amount of individuality in there too, but on each end you have, and it's not a singularity, but a grouping, right? So the grouping, the infection caused, the individuality happens. And then when things get chronic and severe, really the pathways involved kind of coalesce into, you know, the people get exhausted they have pain, they start having psychiatric problems and sleep disturbances, you know, and that's kind of mm-hmm. sums up, I guess, chronic disease, except for cancer mm-hmm. into, you know, in, into that. So it's, the key is pulling apart the individual responses there, even though, you know, from the, again, the sick person is like, wait a minute, you know, everybody I talk to, we all can't sleep. So it's got to be simple, but it's like, no, there are like a million reasons why you don't sleep well. 
and a million pathways. And like, what's, is it genetic? Is it your gut? Is it, you know, the expression of the genetics? Is it a nutrient deficiency? You know, I, I see one thing I think happening with, with Lyme disease is just the exhaustion of being sick. And so part of the recovery, whether or not the bug's still active in you, is is refeeding. So people are almost like they're coming out of concentration camps uh, yeah. and, and depleted in, in some areas, mineral or or maybe protein, but probably more just like the mineral area, mineral areas. Yeah. And again, just you can't, you know, people coming out of a concentration camp, you just can't have them sit down at an all-you-can-eat buffet and refeed. Like that'll actually make mm-hmm. them sick. And so we get some of these recovery setbacks that are you know, bringing in these other pathways that uh, not even thought about because it's like, oh, it's just all I have to do is deal with the infection and kill the infection. And once that happens, everything will be fine. But, you know, the hurricane has come through and there's a lot of damage done. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we don't really understand like the immune system, immunology is one of the most complex systems in our body. And we don't have a good way of knowing what a healthy immune system looks like. And we don't have a good way of knowing what a dysfunctional immune system looks like. We have exactly, I think we have like one or two markers, you know, like CRP and, um, you know, white blood cell count and like, yeah, so we can measure a few things about you to know if your immune system is is riled up, but we don't we don't really that's not a good enough view for something as important as as the system that regulates all all pathogens and um, against you know and fights sometimes fights itself. So um, so yes, they are very complex systems, and there is a lot of individuality in the way that that people respond, even though symptomatically it looks the same. Yes, yeah. You summed up my rambling in a sentence. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so where is where is Lyme research headed? Like, what are the big questions out there that the, from the scientific point of view? I mean, from our point of view, it's simple. It's like, cure us, please. Thank you. Right, of course. But what, what, are the, what are the next hurdles out there, the big questions being asked? Well, I think that the, the same question that's, you know, been worked on, that's being worked on has been at the forefront of everybody's mind for a while is where, like, is it possible for us to continue to see Borrelia or the bug left over in the system and, uh, and track that, sequence that, or, or just acknowledge that it's there and where is it living and how is it moving around and is this what is triggering, you know, the next level immune responses that, that we seem to be seeing in the post-treatment Lyme disease community or the chronic Lyme. I know that. I don't know. Everybody seems to to call it two different things, and I'm naive as to which is the preferred term. Um, I am too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I get confused with what's good. It depends which group you're in, who what they call it. Right. Right. Yes. Um, No worries. We know what you mean. That's good. Thank you. (laughs) So. and so there are amazing people like Monica Embers, who's going to be talking um, on the October 2nd um, 
on the October 2nd, she's going to be giving our first lecture of the conference. And she does, she does work with um, primates and she is able to see uh, traces of the infection left behind in, in this animal model, which is, it's just tremendously valuable because if we can continue, if we can see where, where the bug or pieces of the bug are continuing to live and hide out, we might be able to have more targeted treatments. Um, and so I think, I think that there, and then there's, there's another group um, talking on day one or second, that is the group of researchers who are at the front lines of, you know, ecology research and the tracking, the, tracking this disease as it spreads across the country, um, understanding the animal vectors that, that move these ticks forward and um, understanding the ticks themselves. Um, we, we have a group of researchers here who are using data science methods and drone technologies to, to track tick, tick progress and um, track Lyme as it spreads throughout the country, um, which is happening very, very quickly. Um, I think that for physicians like John Alcott and Richard Horowitz, who I know has been on your program, you know, they are at the front lines of, of really doing what they can with the information at hand to, to treat people and, and find ways to, to make the immediacy better. Um, John Alcott and the group at Johns Hopkins are, are, big partners with us at Mount Sinai, they're doing a lot for us in collecting clinical data. So they have, they're running a number of studies where patients that they're seeing over the course of a season or, or over the course of years are providing us with uh, genetic samples that we are adding to, adding to our um, repository to help us understand through the course of the disease, how the human the human genome is expressing in the face of this bug and in the face of the treatment. So this is something that my, uh, my boss, Joel Dudley, talks about often, which is we don't know sometimes what is causing more damage, the, the bug itself or the, you know, these massive courses of antibiotics and how one is influencing the immune system. And um, so we're trying to understand that too and how, how both bug host and treatment response is influencing our is influencing our genome and um, and the the expression of the expression of genes you know like so, so many of the my naive assumption as a as a clinician is simply there's a it's it's a bell curve right and then mm-hmm. there's a opportunity for the antibiotics to do a lot of good and then at some point they start harming right. Uh, and as as with any intervention, is the is the cure better or worse than the disease kind of thing? Is it is it is it adding more than it's taking away? And the other thing is just the long term. You know, how much do we actually know about long term antibiotic use? Not much, right. I think. Not much. Right. So let's wrap this up by. You said you had a blurb about the conference. So why don't you let everybody know? what the conference is, what parts they might be interested in, they're welcome to attend. And, you know, it's going to be in New York City. It's October. What are the dates again? October 2nd and October 3rd. 
so Tuesday, October 2nd, Wednesday, October 3rd. October 2nd will be hosted at the New York Academy of Medicine, which is on the Upper East Side. And that is the day dedicated to to the deep, deep dive into science and the new research that is coming out of our community of researchers and clinicians. Um, it's going to be a very, very cool day. We have two panel discussions happening um, on the ground, in the field, and at the bench, Lyme disease discovery frontline. So this is going to be um, the group of people like uh, Rick Osfeld and Teja Danieletto who are um, trying to understand how we can prevent Lyme disease from an ecological standpoint. Um, we also have a group that is moderated by Kim Lewis, uh, Advancing Collaboration Through Next Generation Technologies. And they're going to be talking about the importance of collaboration and sharing of data and using the, the new resources that are available to us to, to move the needle forward on research. So that is our October 2nd day. October. Can I sit in on that? Absolutely. Both days are open to the public and they're free and breakfast and lunch are provided. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's a good event. <laughs> um, October 3rd is, um, I'm quite excited about October 3rd. It's going to be hosted at the New York Academy of Sciences, which is in um, the World Trade the World Trade Center complex, and it is the day that is meant to be open to the entire community. So I want to say that this day is also for scientists and clinicians. This is um, we're going to be having some really ex exciting lectures from um, Saruchi Chandra, who um, heads a clinic in, based in Portola Valley, California, on um, integrative psychiatry and medicine. She's Harvard-trained physician who has come into Lyme disease through the treatment of patients in psychiatry and realizing that so many of the people she was treating for psychiatric disorders had Lyme disease. And so I'm very excited to, to hear her talk. She's giving our keynote. And then we have two rather unique lectures following the keynote, um, one led by Joel Dudley and the other by Richard Horowitz, on the, I call them the State of the Union addresses. So um, Joel is going to be giving a State of the Science address, and Dr. Horowitz is going to be giving a State of the Medicine address. And both of these lectures are meant to be a digestible overview of the field as it stands today. What is happening in medicine? How are we treating patients? What is coming up? What is the most exciting thing? Um, and the same with science. Why do we need to be involved? Why are biobanks important? What is the sequencing technology that everybody's talking about? So um, those are going to be some really, really cool talks. I'm very excited for those myself. Um, we're also going to have a Line Mind Expo. Um, this is a open, open arena. We're bringing in about 16 different companies setting up tables, not just companies, but um, research and development groups that are building technologies or um, working with advocacy to, to move the needle on um, Lyme disease and tick-borne disease research and understanding. Um, I think it's going to be a really, a really cool portion of the event. We are also building as part of, as part of this event, uh, an interview experience booth that. Um, we're excited to have people come in and use where 
people will walk into this technology-driven experience and be prompted with a series of questions that are, are specific to, to their, their group, whether they be a patient or a caregiver, a researcher or a clinician. And the idea being that we are going to collect these stories and be able to be able to share from these varying viewpoints you know, how we all got into to Lyme disease, what our Lyme disease story is, and um, what we should be hopeful for, what challenges are we facing, and if if there was one thing you could let the other side know, what would it be? Um, so I'm very, I, I am personally very excited about this because I think that this is a piece that is missing and one that, that there are many groups who are working on are, you know, documentarians and people trying to tell this story, but, um, you know, we're, we're putting this together in a technology driven and like small bite kind of way, um, where people will be provided with, you know, the edited clips of, of their story that they can then share, choose to share if they want to share or, um, for our, for our standpoint, this will be a, this will be a, a really, interesting view of of the field an overview of the field collected over currently just one day but hopefully we'll be able to deploy it elsewhere that's such a good um, idea Break, breaking down silos yes exactly thank you well said um and then the afternoon we have a couple of panels we have a par- patient partnership panel where we're bringing on the stage is going to be a physician a patient, a medical student, and an advocate, all speaking about what we can do to to increase communication. How can we speak to each other better and and increase increase understanding across the board? Um, and then we also have a talk by Dr. Brian Fallon, which I'm very excited about, and he's also a, a tremendous partner to us at Mount Sinai and in the consortia, a tremendous physician and researcher. And then we also, the last thing that we have is, um, well, we have two other things. We have another panel for advocacy and building momentum for change. And we have some very strong voices on that panel, people who've been part of the Health and Human, Health and Human Services um, Board and have, you know, sitting with Congress to help them understand what's, what's happening in this. And then we also have Dana Parrish, who is an author and a musician and uh, an advocate in the community um, speaking, which should be really, really exciting. Um, and then the last, the last part of what of our day is going to be a multimedia experience. We're going to be sharing some clips from our beta testing of this of our interview booth, so people will be able to see, you know, what what they've been participating in all day. And um, I think that we might even have a sneak peek at some um, uh, upcoming documentary. Um, so we'll see. But that's the day. That's the event. I've, I've interviewed a few people in the beginning stages of various documentaries. So I'm kind of excited to see if I might know that person or persons. <laughs> cool. Well, so am I. <laughs> exactly stay tuned yes so i what do i want to say well 
I'm hesitating whether to kind of ask this after the interview or not, but I'm going to just do it in a, in the interview and maybe I'll cut it out. Maybe I won't. I don't know. So if you're listening to this and you hear me talking about it, I didn't cut it out. Do you know of the work of Bob Miller? Have you come across him or? I have not. The specifically. Name? So Bob Miller is a naturopath in Pennsylvania and he is doing genetic work from the ground up from the practitioner side up. And he has a database of, uh, initially it was based on the 23andMe data, and recently he had a custom chip made uh, because 23andMe changed their, their chip and what they were testing for. And he's been doing some work, uh, it's basic uh, in terms of what SNPs he sees showing up in people with, with chronic Lyme disease. And it just seems to me that you guys should at least know about each other, um, if, if not begin to collaborate a little bit. Um, and he's, he's a weird, he's a little bit like you. He's, he's this interesting combination of uh, technology and clinic work and, and also this gen- genetic research work that he's doing. Uh, and I think, I think kind of the piece he's looking for is the artificial intelligence because at some point it just mm-hmm. becomes too complicated to track all the different connections that are, you know, even the simple connections, right? You start adding four items in and you just don't know what's doing what. Mm-hmm. And then he may also be a source of data for you because I think currently he has about, uh, he's collected and they're not all for Lyme disease, but they're for pretty sick people, about 30,000 uh, individual tests there. So he has a lot of data um, available. That sounds fascinating. I definitely I wanna, would like to connect yeah, with him. Yes. I, wa- I want to make that connection and, you know, maybe something will work out. Maybe it won't. But cool. um, I think it's you, you should at least know that he's out there. So he's he's almost like the Wright brothers, right? He's kind of out there in the right. wilderness, you know, tinkering, <laughs> basically, building his own uh, building his own uh, next gen kind of thing. So it it's uh, not super sophisticated. Uh, but That's on the other hand, it's lots of data and lots of insight that he's gathered. That's great. I, I mean, hundreds and thousands of patients. I love what we can do as uh, doing the world as citizen scientists and, um, you know, the scrappy grassroots efforts to, to, to help the whole progress. It's just, it's wonderful. That's great. I definitely would like to connect with him for sure. Okay. I'll make sure I send the information along to you. And the last thing, even so, even though, you know, you're, you're not a Lyme ninja, you don't have Lyme disease and you're not directly working with people with Lyme disease, but in your experience of life and being a massage therapist and being in the, the law field and the research field, kind of like, what would be your suggestion for people who are trying to get better? Like, what are the top three things people can do to, help themselves climb out of the Lyme hole, so to speak? I think listening, listening to their bodies and being, being honest with their bodies when, when they're tired or when things are hard, giving, giving themselves the freedom to feel, to feel that way. I think that we often push ourselves too hard because we're, we expect that, well, I should be better by now. And sometimes we do more damage just by not giving ourselves the time to to heal and to and to slow down, 
Um, I think, I think that finding ways to enhance quality of life, even in the midst of all of the, the suffering, um, either through meditation or simple exercise or, you know, finding ways that, that you can find sweetness and gratitude in, in your daily life. Um, I mean, these are all, these are all just my personal anecdotes for how I choose to live my life. Um, so I don't know, I don't know if they're, if they're true, especially to Lyme patients or to the world at large, but, um, I think forgiveness for ourselves and gratitude for the, the world around us is, is my best advice for anything. I think that's very beautiful. I think the, the individual is kind of the, some of the Taoist idea that you can see the universe in a grain of sand. The mm-hmm. individual absolutely translates out into the universal. And a struggle is a struggle, whether it's with Lyme disease or or uh, or something else, you know, something personal. Mm-hmm. So those are those are beautiful. Savi, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. It's my and pleasure. I look forward to meeting you in a few weeks. Yes, yes. Um, and I guess I should say that more information about the Lyme Conference can be found on LimeMind.org. You know, I think it's really cool that she was so excited to make the conference more, like, accessible to non-scientific people like myself. Like, I remember last year when we went, uh, one of the one of the feedback I had was, one of the comments I had was, it, this is super cool and I'm learning a lot. I wish I had the foundation to, like, understand more of it. So it's really cool that she kind of, there more people were saying that and she kind of took that into, to, into account. You know, the lectures we were listening to there in New York City, it must be like some of our interviews that we do where you understand about every fifth word or maybe every tenth word and you try to put together some meaning behind it. If that does happen to you when you're listening to Lime Ninja Radio, go back and listen again because you'll get more out of it. You'll begin to build some understanding and base off of that. So, Listening to an episode more than once, you really get something different. And even if you understand the whole thing, if you, even even if you understand it and you're an expert in the area, if you go back and listen again, you will hear something new that you didn't hear before. That's just the way hearing works. We can't take it all in all the time. That said, if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, please hit the subscribe button. That way you won't miss even one episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. And if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate it if you'd support us by donating $1 a month. For just $1 a month, you can help us make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. Head on over to our new homepage, www.limeninjaradio.com, and look for the patron link under the How Can We Help You headline. A big shout-out to our newest patrons, Drew, Jenna, and Catherine. Thank you for making the world a better place for people with Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. And if you have any feedback, suggestions for guests, anything, really, send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. 
And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know? Ninjas don't need photos. They take mental pictures. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.